I invite you to pray with me again. Almighty God, you have awakened us to this day, a delight for the senses, the cold that shocks us into alertness, the warmth of the sun's rays, the clear skies that deliver light and clarity all around us. We can smell the budding flowers. We can hear the birds returning and seeking sustenance, ready to raise the next generation. Gracious God, you have given us these senses to experience in so many ways the glory of your creation. And we recognize that there is more. That we need to see more and hear more and be touched by more. For the emptiness that resides within each one of us, the evidence of our losses and our pains and our hurts and our sicknesses, our failures and our sin, what we have done and what's been done to us. All of it requires more than the empirical evidence of our senses. It requires your very self to open our lives and our spirits to your presence, to the counsel of your word, to the assurance of your faithfulness, to the power of your healing and new life. Gracious God, even on a clear day like this one, we confess before you that we need to see Jesus. And we pray that as we sing, that as we worship, that as we share time around this table, you would be faithful to your promise, not only never to leave us or forsake us, but even more today, to reveal yourself to us in a way that is unmistakable. That the hidden and closed places of our lives, residing in the darkness of our own making, might be brought into the light of your love, and they're healed and made right and made new. If there is that which we cannot carry forward in order to be faithful to that vision, gracious God, by your grace, forgive us and allow us the strength to release all that weighs us down. That we might be finally, fully, and freely yours, as is your will, as is your desire, made known in this one whom we seek, who lived and died and was raised again that we might see you this day and every day. Be with us now as we continue this time of worship. Be with those in our midst who are hurting. Be with those who are not present in body but ever on our minds. and guide us to those places where we might bear witness to what happens today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
It's with real humility that I open my mouth after that. A beautiful meditation and invitation for all of us to rest and to release into the boundless, faithful love of God. A love that's made known in concrete ways through Jesus Christ, who has given us a tangible means by which we in worship might remember him. Today, as we announced last week, we're going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper together. And this will be the first time since COVID that we as a congregation gathered on a Sunday morning have celebrated the Lord's Supper in this recognizably Baptist way, where the deacons take the gifts of the table, carry them out to you, and share these gifts. Together in unity, we'll partake of the bread. Together in unity, we will drink the cup and remember his body and his blood, the sacred covenant that was made in his life and in his death by his resurrection. And so I'm a little emotional, surprisingly. I'm not sure what it has sort of surfaced for me. I'll spend some time reflecting on it this afternoon. But as we share this together, I hope not only that it reminds you of, of who you are as a beloved child of God and as a beloved part of this congregation, but also that it reveals to you what it is you need to see what it is you need to know or receive as you approach Jesus. Now, full confession. Because we haven't done it in a while, we're out of practice. And because it's after COVID, we recognize that the Baptist mode of pass and grab that was so you know, familiar to us all is probably not going to be comfortable to everyone anymore. So we're going to take a few more steps. And I just want you to know the deacons will be having... They'll have gloves on their hands as they carry the bread out to you, as they carry the cups out to you. In addition, they're going to deliver to you the elements of the table rather than you sort of reaching for it. That, that way we have one, one set of gloved hands handling all of these elements. One of the things that we puzzled over, and I just didn't take the time to do it today, I think we're going to be able to get it to work. It'd be, of course, easiest if we staggered every other row and everybody just sort of sit in every other row. I thought about putting balloons. You can sit here, not here. But that also surfaced a lot of bad memories uh, in, in COVID for me, where we had to assign seats and all the rest. That's why at the beginning I asked you to bear with us. Deacons, bear with us. We're, we're going to get this done. Everyone's going to be fed. And for you, just sort of recognize the means by which we are sharing these elements with you today. We're going to build some new habits. I felt obligated to have an extended meditation on the way we're doing communion today, but thus endeth the lesson. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 9. We'll be reading verses 1 through 8, part of an extended story, also a meditation through a historical moment in the life of Jesus, not only on the encounter one man had with Jesus, but indeed a community and even us. John chapter 9, verses 1 through 8. As Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, 
this man or his parents that he was born blind. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he said. Wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? May God bless the reading and the hearing of the word today. It's hard to miss the opening Uh, words in this story and be propelled right to that place where we so often reside in a world and in lives that are so full of trouble trying in one way or another to try make the connections between our difficulties and the mind and the will and the heart of God we especially want to do this when bad things happen when bad things happen in the world and we want to figure out if the God we believe in is somehow changing things or delivering these bad things, the litany is, is as long as we want to make it. Blaming God for world events, whether it be the, the Twin Towers falling 9-11, COVID itself, uh, and, and all the rest, even more the number of times I've sat with individuals when they've received a difficult diagnosis or been thrown an unexpected change in their life over which they had no control and no say. Why did God do this? Or more softly, why did God let this happen? It's a valid question. It's a question... As old as our thinking, faithful minds, I think, have, have been around. But I think we're a little too eager to answer that. How many times have you caught yourself either internally or sometimes even verbally sort of speculating a little bit on maybe how and why God was at work in a situation? Inevitably, that seems to me to be the result of our desire to control a situation that from the outside looking in is uncontrollable or somehow to remove ourselves or in some way or other try and relieve our own discomfort by sitting with someone else who is suffering or sitting in our own suffering the entire book of job is filled with these extended meditations where people did just that spent a lot of time His friends, after seven days of pure silence, which is a great approach, by the way, if you don't know what to say, they start speculating. And as they start speculating, they try and draw a connection between Job's life and and the incredible hardship that he was facing. So we should be surprised that the disciples here at the beginning of John chapter 9 ask a very familiar question. Who sinned? This man, his parents, that he was born blind. 
someone has to be blamed when things are not normal or when things aren't as we think they should be. But Jesus' response in verse 3 provides a single statement that provides counter-argument in many ways for us to reconsider our whole outlook on the way our lives play out. Neither this man nor his parents sinned that he was born blind, but that God's work, God's glory would be revealed in him. So it's not a matter of itemizing sins and on the ledger sort of connecting them with our judgments. Life's more nuanced. It's more complicated than that. Jesus, of course, acknowledged that rain falls on the wicked as well as the good. And so we cannot in any way be so certain as we seem to want to be when things go wrong, particularly in someone else's life. The Pharisees don't do much better as spiritually insightful as they are. If we read on in chapter 9, the Pharisees end up getting themselves into something of a theological tangle as they try and diminish the power of what happens. This man's sight is restored. And occasionally, from time to time, he simply pops up and says, I, I don't know, I was blind, but now I can see. And so the Pharisees try and undermine the process first by calling Jesus a sinner because this happened to take place on the Sabbath. So he can't be a prophet. He can't be the son of man because he's a sinner. And that doesn't get traction. So then they move to another plan, which is to begin to impeach the miracle itself. It's not what you think it was. It wasn't much of a miracle to begin with. It's a setup. It's a fake. It's false. And when that doesn't get traction, then they pivot back to calling Jesus a sinner again, just grouping everybody together. This can't be believed because it comes from a sinner. None of this really works because the healed man himself is the counter argument to all of this. No mere sinner could simply have the pull with God to have their crisis revealed. There has to be something special about this person. And at the same time, no one can deny he now sees. So unless there's been a decades-long fraud, they have to deal with what has happened. And so Jesus begins our story today by repudiating that simplistic notion of cause and effect in the world. If I do right, God will do right by me. If I do wrong, God will bring hardship on me. We unpacked this a few summers ago when we read Kate Bowler's book. And so I won't rehash all of the reflection there. But as Jesus repudiates that, he takes special aim then on the Pharisees because there's a different sort of of engagement that's taking place from them as they try every way possible to diminish what is happening in their midst jesus begins to read all of this stubborn rejection no longer a sort of blind ignorance that needs to be in some way drawn out but instead a willful sin of rejection that even as jesus reveals and remains 
present in their midst. They simply won't see him for who he is and what he's done. And so all this spiritual wrangling and all this posturing, in many ways, keeps people from appreciating the depth of the miracle they've just witnessed. John tells us, of course, that this man was blind, but now he can see. But there's more neurologists tell us about what happens when someone goes from blindness to sight. That one of the things that Jesus must have been able to do as this man got up and walked merrily on his way was also in some way kind of reformed the mental neurological software for him to be able to interpret all the data that was coming in through his eyes. Those who have their sight returned to them require therapy to be able to judge distances, <laughs> to be able to reach out and, and grab a glass and know they're going to reach it. Sometimes they knock it over because it's too close. Um, notoriously, they run into walls and columns and things like that because they can't judge proximity, distance, depth, and all the rest. They have to learn that that thing that they've touched for so long, that's a cup now. And so if that begins to help us understand the great sweep of what it is this story tells us about Jesus' presence. Not only does he restore sight, but he's also granting now a capacity to navigate through the world with these new eyes. And so let's step into a broader spiritual conversation when we talk about how Jesus gives us a new vision to see ourselves, to see God, to see the world. He not only allows us to see sin for sin and truth for truth, but also gives us the spiritual software, as it were, to begin to process those data in a different way. To learn how to navigate our lives according to what is being revealed to us by our renewed spiritual sight. This man, born blind, is given not only the restored vision, but he's also been given, in a sense, the roadmap by which he can see the world and understand what it is he sees. It's a profound truth about the way Jesus goes to work in our lives. And so as we receive Jesus' healing ministry in our lives, we are going to be taught to perceive the world differently as well, and how to reroute our lives that they might be lived quite differently according to what it is we see now. But in the story, what it amounts to is that this man who was once blind now has sharper spiritual vision than the people around him, whether it's in the community who don't seem to be able to understand, or the Pharisees who are willingly resisting what it is that is being revealed to them. This man who was blind truly sees. And those with perfect 20-20 vision still don't seem to have any clarity at all. Indeed, perhaps living in darkness. And so we begin with counsel to the disciples, and I think to us, that as we look at what's happening in the world, as we consider what's happening in our lives, even when we try and show real 
seriousness and sobriety about our faith. We might say more about other people's sins than we really know. The Pharisees seem to have crystal clarity about that. They dismissed Jesus and the healed man simply as sinners. And they remind us that we sometimes use sin as a label, as a way to avoid people. Folks, where if we would sit and if we would listen, they might even have something to teach us. But at the end of the story, very chillingly, there's this hint that sometimes the very people who talk the most about sin are themselves probably the blindest of all. Now we read this halfway through the season of Lent as we anticipate Easter. This is supposed to be a time where we consider sin probably in a more focused way, in a more serious way. And in no way do I want to dispense with that focus because it is critical for us to be able to see ourselves and see the world clearly that we might look through the cross to what is being brought about in Jesus' resurrection. But as one pastor said, it is no longer going to be for us love the sinner and hate the sin. For us, Jesus seems to imply it's love the sinner, hate your own sin. And as you consider the broad brokenness of this world, the global sin that exists, we can consider it with great seriousness. It explains to us why God so loved the world that he sent his only son. But to focus too much on out there in the wider world is in some ways to cultivate a smugness that's going to blind us to what's going on in our own lives. They can make us so blind to our own need for grace that we can become really stingy in offering grace to others. And so, think globally, as it were. Pray locally. And take a deep look at your own life. I'll never forget, this is 25 years ago now. I got a speeding ticket. And in traffic court, I, I asked for traffic school, and the judge granted it. And I remember having to spend a Saturday there in Southside, Virginia, um, going over all the traffic signs again and having to take a test at the end of the day. Eight hours of traffic school to wipe this ticket off of my record. And I remember during one of the breaks, sitting out there with my fellow students, people of all ages from all over that area of the state, as we sat down, we, we sort of told our stories. Uh, you know, how did you get caught? What happened? What happened to you? What happened to you? And almost to a one, everyone said, I shouldn't have gotten that ticket. But I had it coming for all the times I didn't get caught. And I've thought about that a lot. That in some ways, in the heat of the moment, we may not think that, that we deserve one way or another what we're experiencing in the moment. But when you're honest... And you consider the grand sweep of your life. Maybe we all had it coming. It's not wrong. And this is the great spiritual truth that equalizes our need before God. 
that whether we are on the inside looking out at the world here within the safe confines of this fellowship, having a faith and a life that is vibrant and that is being cultivated in the presence of a community by the Holy Spirit, or whether you feel awfully alone, our need remains the same. And so removes from the table the value of examining someone else's life and trying to figure out what they did wrong to end up where they are. It calls a different sort of response out of us. We, of all people in the world, can show something different. Or maybe I should say we can show someone different. If the gospel is good news, then it is going to be a news that is uh, shared in grace. That none of us in Christ get what we would otherwise deserve. And at the same time, with more specificity, we can show someone who is different. Probably the most interesting detail at the very conclusion of this story happens when Jesus encounters this man born blind. Of course, Jesus encountered him when he was blind puts mud on his eyes, and he goes away. And then John says he went home, seeing. Even at the end of the story, as Jesus' condition, as this man's condition, as the Pharisees uh, bandy them about, as there's this ongoing debate, this man whose sight is restored has never seen Jesus. He's never seen him. And so when Jesus encounters him, he asks him, he says, do you believe in the Son of Man? This man, never having seen Jesus, doesn't recognize him as the agent of his healing. But then Jesus tells him who he is, and the man falls down in worship. And so we approach this table today to see Jesus And to hang on to those places in life where we have had glimpses of grace and healing and hope and love. And to remember how that is delivered to us from God by the hands and the feet and the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. He's given us these symbols of body and blood that we might in our time together experience the very love of God in Jesus Christ. N.T. Wright captured it so beautifully. If you want to know who God is, he says, look at Jesus. If you want to know what it means to be human, look at Jesus. If you want to know what grief is, look at Jesus. And go on looking until you're not just a spectator, but you're actually part of the drama which has him as the central character. So I invite you now, with open hands, with open hearts, with open lives, to present yourself to God in a way that acknowledges your deep need. And with thanksgiving, recognize the way that God is already at work in you and around you. Give thanks for the grace that bridges the gap between our faults and God's very presence. 
and receive. Receive the promise that Jesus will show himself to us.